Welcome to Revelation Ancient Prophecy. This series is a detailed, in-depth study of the book of Revelation. You will discover just how relevant to our day the prophecies of Revelation really are. Here is your presenter, Pastor Baron Neustraten. Good evening. Here we are again, the book of Revelation, and uh, we are going through it. And in fact, uh, it just uh, dawned on me uh, tonight that uh, we're almost halfway through the book of Revelation. And uh, I trust you have been following and that you have been uh, bearing with all the details that, uh, that are given to you. And I hope it has been a blessing to you. Could I invite you just to bow your heads as we pray for the Holy Spirit to be amongst us. Heavenly Father, we, we, we thank you that we can again study that wonderful book, the book of Revelation, that has so much meaning for us. And, and Lord, we identify with all that is written in it. And we thank you for all the evidence and all the information and uh, all, the, um, all, all that you have set out for us to be and to do, uh, which has been made so clear in this particular book. And so we pray that you bless us tonight, that you be with us, and Lord, that we may benefit and profit from it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I did talk about the curse of the Talmud. The curse of the Talmud was placed by the Jews on the particular portion of the book of Daniel, uh, which we um, talked about, particularly chapter 9, uh, the one we talked about last week. You, you do recall that. And uh, the, 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 the rabbis, after the time of Christ, have pronounced a curse on anyone, anyone who would attempt to calculate the dates of this chapter. You understand that that chapter, uh, chapter 9 of the book of Daniel, gives us the very year that Jesus was the anointed one. Uh, from the Hebrew Masach, we get the word Messiah. Uh, he was anointed by the Holy Spirit. Now, in the tradition of the Jews and, uh, uh, and, and Christians, anointing is done by oil because oil is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. But in the case of Jesus, of course, it was the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove, not as a dove. And so it's interesting, we know that year to be 27 AD, we also know that three and a half years later, uh, we have the uh, spring northern hemisphere in 31 AD, and clearly, and clearly that is when he was uh, crucified, and then the culmination of the Jewish probation of the 40, 490 years later. Of course, they're very displeased about that. And the ultimate thing you may recall was that that the temple in Jerusalem were going to be destroyed after the Messiah had been and gone, because that was in the book of Daniel. And uh, the last thing that a Jew would want to hear is that the probationary time as a people, as a chosen people, uh, has expired. And so here it is. The book of Daniel used to be ranked under the prophets. You know, in the, 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 the Hebrew, they, uh, the Jews, they divide their books by the prophets, the writings, uh, of course, uh, these are very important. And then we note that the book of Daniel was under the prophets. But nowadays, 
it is now back under the, or in, in, transferred to the writings, which is quite remarkable. From the prophets, they have moved the book of Daniel uh, in their index to the writings because they don't want to see Daniel as a prophet. And that's quite amazing. What an act to do. Terrible. Before the Exodus, Moses endured the desert. 40 years. Sheep, what a way to spend your life. Particularly if you look at the background where Moses came from, the palace life and training and education. Prison and exile prepared Joseph and Daniel. Uh, you study their lives, remarkable. David was a fugitive before he became a king. And Elijah, well, Elijah wanted to die. He faltered before he was ready for translation. And of course, Calvary was before the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. And you can really imagine, try to imagine what happened to the disciples, that bitter disappointment there on that Friday, the 14th of Nisan, and Jesus had been crucified. Terrible. Often a great disappointment, however, often a great disappointment precedes a great commission. And that was the case with the Advent movement and the sweet and bitter experience that they had. It's been said that every disappointment is really an appointment with God. I like that because I believe that that is true. It will direct you to a deeper study of the word and I, I recommend we all do that. When you feel disappointed or you, you don't understand your circumstances, turn to the word of God. It leads to a better understanding of the Bible and not just that, also a better understanding of God's will for you. And I think it'd be very profitable if you adopted that. Just a very brief basic recap. We have that long time period of 2,300 years, the 490 years of Jewish probation cut off from the beginning. And that leaves us, that leaves us of course, if you deduct the 490 years from the 2,300 years, that leaves you with 1,810 years. We know the dates. 457 BC, a affirmed starting date of both the 490 years of the Jews and the 2300 period of time that we have studied. And the culmination at 34 AD, and of course if you add to 34 AD, you get to 1844. If you add the 1810 years to 34 AD, you come to 1844, and that is how Miller came to that particular specific date. And in fact, they took it as being applicable to the Yom Kippur of the day. And that date was October the 22nd of 1844. But of course, the event was wrong. And he realized that that was the last time, uh, the last prophetic uh, statement that could be dated. The wrong event. Jesus was not coming, did not come to uh, destroy this world by fire, by cleanse it by fire. And they had to relearn, they had to go back to the Bible, and they had to learn what the actual event was. So they came to the right event. And if only they would have initially studied the 11th chapter of the book of Revelation, when you go to verse 1, John says, 
he was given a measuring rod. Now you understand, he has a commission. If you go to chapter 10, right at the end, the, the angel, there's an open book, none other than Christ himself says, says, you must prophesy again. You must prophesy again. And then if you go to verse 1 and 2, particularly verse 1 of the next chapter, you have a clear indication what has to be prophesied and why they can prophesy again because they now have an understanding of the correct application of the culmination of the 2,300 years. And so he was given a measuring rod. Measuring means examining. I like that, examining. And uh, he was told, rise and measure the temple of God. Now, we know that uh, at the time of writing 95 AD, there was no temple of God because the temple had been destroyed in 70 AD. And in the personification of John being representing the people right at the time of the end and towards the culmination of the 2,300 years, we understand that that couldn't be applicable to a literal temple either because there's no literal temple uh, since 70 AD, let alone in 1844 AD. And so, measure the temple. Well, that leaves only the heavenly temple. And that is what the people that were the Adventists discovered when they went back to Scripture. Remember Hiram Edson? I told you the story. Great story. And the altar had to be studied and those who worship there. You see, what is important that we have a clear understanding of the ministry of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary. It is amazing that when you look at the reformers, great men of God, but the reformers never got to the actual sanctuary services per se. They did not understand the ministry of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary. None of them did. And yet, that was the commission and that was the prediction that the people of God after the great disappointment would do just that. And they did. And they did. The focus was on the heavenly temple. And so the cleansing of the sanctuary and the daily, which is the intercession, the continual, you remember there is a big issue about the continual services of Jesus in the holy place, which was foreshadowed, as you well know, by the priest in the earthly, in the earthly sanctuary. The study uh, was predicted and fulfilled. What is amazing is this. The fact that at that time, the people of God turned to the Bible and studied the issue of the heavenly sanctuary. The great disappointment that found place before that and led to that was predicted and fulfilled. It's amazing to me that at 95 AD on an island in Patmos, somewhere in the Adriatic Sea, this obscure prophet predicts way ahead of time. He predicts the events that are finding place and the study of the sanctuary and the appreciation of the ministration of Christ and the actual disappointment are very clear predictions, very clear predictions here. Let's go back to Daniel just for a moment. So the angel comes to Daniel and he gives him an understanding, particularly about the little horn power. You might recall that. Now in Daniel 8, there are two phases to the little horn power. And so the second phase comes after the 
pagan Roman. Pagan Rome finished in 476 AD. So we we now speaking of after 538 AD when the Bishop of Rome really came into his own and they started to wield their power and influence. The little horn power, this is what Gabriel had to say. Listen very carefully. Thus he said, thus he said, and he shall exalt himself in his heart, speaking of the little horn power, he shall destroy many in their prosperity that is persecute, and it was a persecuting power, papal Rome, he shall even rise against the prince of princes. Now the prince of princes, of course, is Jesus Christ himself. We know that. But he shall be broken, and I like this, qualification is very important. But he shall be broken without human means. In other words, it's not humanity that will put an end to this entity. It'll be done supernaturally and as we will study and continue to study the book of Revelation, you'll find that that destruction is of course by Christ when he returns. So if you just consider those two last verses, he shall even rise against the prince of the princes, against Jesus. He shall be broken without human means, no human hands. Uh, you might say, well, the, the Roman Catholic Church is not against Christ. Well, that's not quite true. They have attacked his ministry in the heavenly sanctuary. And I have to point this out. I have to point this out. He shall even rise against the prince of princes, against Christ. Let's have a look at it. Let's have a look at it. After pagan Rome, which is a horizontal conquest, we get a vertical aggression towards the heavenly sanctuary itself. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him the daily and the word sacrifices doesn't belong there, were taken away, and it's better translated as by him the continual was taken away. And the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Now, let's hold it here. The place of his sanctuary, that is the sanctuary of the prince of princes, or the prince of the host, Jesus, his ministration, was cast down. Being cast down means in the Hebraic uh, expression, it was rejected. And that is where he was rising against the Prince of Princes. He rejected, this institution rejects, and it must be said, rejects the ministration of Christ in the holy place. Intercession. When you look at the Eucharist, now, only one-third of the Catholics truly believe that the waver changes into the body of Christ. That is called transubstantiation. That's the word for it. Which was really introduced only in the 12th century. Not before. You would say that was an afterthought. It wasn't practiced by the early Christians like that. They had the Last Supper. They, they had the Lord's Supper. Oh, of course. But it was not a sacrament as it was proposed by the Roman Catholic Church and upheld by some other Protestant, Anglican churches. Note this. 
the fact of the matter is this. That in Catholicism, it is believed that Jesus has to continue to die, to be sacrificed continually, which is against scripture, totally. Hoc es corpus meum, it means this is my body, and it's called the adoration of the host because of the transubstantiation is not biblically acceptable and correct. Neither for that matter, and I have to mention this too, is the absolution that is given by a priest by way of forgiveness for sins. Sin is a breaking of the law. Which law? Well, the law of God. So where do we go for forgiveness? Well, we go to God. No human being has the right to pronounce on its, uh, his own authority forgiveness to a sinner. That only belongs to God. That is his prerogative. And so, here we have again a rebellion against really the ministration of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary. The Holy Spirit sanctifies us. It's the chosen ordained means by God to bring us where he wants us to be. And we have to submit to the power of the Holy Spirit. It is what we pray for. It's what we desire. Sanctification cannot, cannot come about in a perceived purgatory where through suffering you become sanctified. That is unbiblical. So we have a counterfeit forgiveness. We have a counterfeit sanctification. And we have a counterfeit Sabbath. I'll only give one quote. The Roman Catholic Church will assume and take and accept responsibility for the changing of the solemnity of the seventh-day Sabbath to the first day of the week. And, uh, and I'll give you a statement by this particular cardinal, Cardinal Gibbons. He was a very uh, uh, eminent 19th century Roman Catholic uh, prelate. He says, if the Bible is the only guide for the Christian, then, uh, this is a Roman Catholic cardinal, then the Seventh-day Adventist is right in observing Saturday with the Jew. Why did he say that? Because he knows that there is no scriptural authority for changing that day, and he knows it's the Roman Catholic Church that has been responsible for this change that has occurred. In which the Protestant churches did actually follow still in the footsteps of the Roman Catholic Church. There is a counterfeit intercession too. Because Mary is resting in the grave, wonderful woman that she is, she is resting in the grave awaiting the resurrection, not in heaven, interceding. Neither are any of the saints that are being prayed to. This is necromancy, which was strictly forbidden in the Bible, praying to the saints. Paul said it very succinctly. There is one God and one mediator between God and man. And that is the man, Christ Jesus. Could it be any plainer and simpler than that? And so, Christ is our heavenly high priest. Studying the heavenly sanctuary is of full importance. He was given that measuring rod, now you understand, like a, like a staff. And I was told, he says, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those that worship there. This is very important. The, the 
principal reality of the culmination of the 2,300 years, when the cleansing of the sanctuary begins, which is a judgment scene. And in that judgment scene, those who worship at the altar and accept the ministration of Christ, they are being judged. Their sins are forgiven and they are being judged and God is being judged and vindicated that he does forgive them by also giving them not just forgiveness, but also removing the record of their sins from the sanctuary. You may recall that we explained that the priest would bring in the records of the sin into the temple, but it didn't belong there. And once a year in the typical Jewish um, economy, they had the Yom Kippur where they would remove the records from the sanctuary. And that is what the anti-typical heavenly pre-advent investigative judgment is all about. Now notice, but do not, do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. He's in, it's interesting. We're not judging those who are not worshipping Christ, those who have rejected. Leave the court, leave it outside the temple, leave that out, uh, for it is given over to the nations, notice, and they shall trample the holy city. Now the holy city here is not Jerusalem physically, it is really the people of God. It's an, it's an expression for the church, if you like, for 42 months, which is the equivalent to the 1260 days, which we know by the year day principle becomes the 1260 years. And I know that sometimes it can be somewhat confusing, but if you bear the principles of my, in mind of the prophetic interpretation, allowing for the fact that the Bible interprets itself, there is no problem, there is no problem. Now, I will grant authority to, to my two witnesses. We're going to discover who they are, the two witnesses. Notice. And they will prophesy for 1260 years. That's really from 538 to 1798, that era of suppression of the medieval church. You, you remember that. And they will prophesy for 1,260 years, not days, because the year day principle applies. And so closed in sackcloth. Now sackcloth is really uh, an expression of mourning. Uh, people used to attire them with themselves with sackcloth if they were mourning. And so we're talking about two witnesses that are witnessing. After all, they are witnesses. They are witnessing or prophesying. Prophesying is not just for telling the future. Prophesy is also exhortation for people, a people to return to God. And so, and so for prophesying for 1260 years, the, during all those years of oppression, God will have his two witnesses closed in sackcloth because they're being persecuted. Terrible what's happening. Now, these, he goes on to say, are the two olive trees. Notice. And they are two lampstands. That's interesting. That's very interesting. Um, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. What's meant by that? Now, if you go to John, the fifth chapter, verse 39, Jesus was speaking to the Jews. He said, 
you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And, and in fact, the, he's indicating that that is true, but he says, they are the ones that testify of me. They wanted to search the scriptures, they wanted eternal life, but they didn't want Jesus. And of course, that doesn't work. No one, as Jesus said, comes to the Father, but through him. And so now there are two witnesses. And when I hear that, then I think of it like this. If I look at my Bible, which I do believe really is the word of God. I mean, let's look at Psalm 119 and verse 105. It says this, Your word is a lamp to my feet, and a light to my path. If I want to know about God and understand his will and who he is and what he wants from me, I turn to the Bible. And as I turn to the Bible, I find it telling me, explaining to me, instructing me. I look at the Old Testament. The Old Testament points to whom? To Jesus to come, the Messiah to come. I look at the New Testament and I can see the fulfillment of all the prophetic predictions of the Old Testament. See, I have the Old Testament and I have the New Testament. And those are, of course, the two witnesses that we are talking about here. Jesus said himself in Matthew 24, and the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the world as what? A witness. A witness to all nations and then the end will come. That's what he said. Revelation 11 verse 5, if anyone wants to harm them, have a look at the, the language here. Fire proceeds from their mouth, note this, and devours their enemies. Jesus on one occasion, he said to them, I haven't come to judge, but the words that I speak to you they will judge you. And I think there's a similar statement here. If anyone wants to deny, uh, insult, ignore, uh, do away with, the words that he spoke, that which he teaches, ultimately fire will proceed. That means sin and sinner one day will be destroyed. And that's what this is talking about. If anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner because that is the ultimate fate of those who attack the word of God. They have power to shut heaven. Now, uh, it's interesting, so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. Now, that straight away makes you think of Elijah the prophet. Remember that he, he prayed that there be no rain. And he said that, but by the word of God, there, there would be no rain for three and a half years. And that is exactly what happened. Uh, and, and that makes you think of him. And they have power over waters. Notice, uh, the two witnesses have power over the waters uh, and turn them into, into blood. And that reminds you of the first plague there in, in, in Egypt. Uh, Moses pronounced that plague. And, and it goes on to say, and to... Uh, it goes on to say, and to strike the earth with all plagues. And in fact, later on in the book of Revelation, we will come to the seven last plagues. Interesting. As often as they desire, there is power in the word of God. It can pronounce plagues. That's what it's saying. All the New Testament, no doubt, are the two witnesses here. 
Now, when they finish that testimony, the testimony is given during the 1260 years. Now, when they finish that testimony, so we're looking towards the end, towards 1798, the beast, notice, that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them. Now, right at that time frame, towards the end of the 1260 years, there is going to be a new entity. It's described as a beast that comes out of a bottomless pit. If it comes out of a bottomless pit, it has no truth and no foundation. And so that will oppose, and we will find out who that beast is, it, it will oppose God's word, Old and New Testament. It will attack it. Note, note the language. Very strong. Um, it will overcome them. It will overcome them. Um, and, uh, and kill them. Now, that's very interesting. Uh, sort of after the 1260 years of witnessing, round about 1798. In fact, if you look at the preceding verse, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 years, which I told you is from 538 to 1798, closed in Seklov. They were not killed. They were still prophesying. But at this stage, there is going to be an very destructive power that actually will kill the word. That's interesting. Now look at this, look, look at what the revelator writes. Their dead bodies, the two witnesses, the Bible, will be in the street of that great city. What great city? Let's have a look. Which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt. Now, Sodom is the emblem of licentiousness. You know the story of Abram um, and the uh, destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. You also know the story about Egypt. Egypt, the Pharaoh who didn't want to let the people of God go. Who is God? Denying the existence of God. Where also our Lord was crucified. Now, where was Jesus crucified? Well, Jerusalem. That's a very difficult bit of writing here. But when you apply the principle of the spiritual application, it becomes plain. Sodom explained licentiousness. Egypt, I call it atheism, denying God his existence. The Lord was crucified when I, I think of that. I think when Jesus said, inasmuch as you do it unto any of these, you what? Do it unto me. And this is a reference to some of the atrocities that there are so many on the records. The details are incredible. I've just picked one example of the persecution and the, the viciousness of the persecution for hundreds and hundreds of years. You know, a couple of years ago, we all were horrified by the behavior of an organization called ISIS or ISIL that operated in the Levant, the Middle East, as you know. And we were horrified by the cruelties that were perpetrated. If you make a study of the cruelties that were afflicted to those who wanted to worship God in truth and in spirit, the Protestants, 
those who wanted to have the freedom to worship God like that, you will see that that organization that horrified us so much was quite tame compared to the atrocities that were committed at the behest of the medieval church. Now, one of those, and I've just taken one example and uh, perhaps mentioned also the Albigenses. St. Bartholomew massacre was on the 24th of August. It started from the night of the 23rd to the 24th, 1572. It lasted for a number of weeks in France. And there in France, even though they were supposed to have the protection of the king because he had given it to them, but he broke his word. Catherine de Medici was perhaps the most active proponents of killing all the Protestants there in France. The massacre was enormous. Tens of thousands of women, children, men, old men, young men, destroyed, killed, butchered, slaughtered, just because they wanted to worship God according to their conscience. That is a terrible record for which never, ever, ever has ever been made an apology, if you like. The extermination of the Albigenses in the Alps of southern France, uh, and one, one could study the Waldenses, and I would recommend that you study uh, the, the, the records of the suffering of the martyrs through those ages. Incredible. You wouldn't believe what you would read, the viciousness uh, that was applied in exterminating this good people. Egypt, we know. Moses stands before Pharaoh. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Exodus, of course, you find it in the fifth chapter. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? You know, it is a known fact that if you look at communism, if you look at communism, the way it arose into being, and involved into what it had become. They got their philosophy, they got their origin from the French Revolution. You can look at uh, English, Trotsky, Lenin, they all studied the history and what went on during the French Revolution. The French Revolution proposed atheism. There is no God. And it was forbidden to believe in a God. It was forbidden to worship a God. Oh, it was incredible. The French Revolution shook the whole world and it changed the history of mankind because it left an indelible influence on the minds of so many people. Communism came forth from this. Of course, as we look at Joseph Stalin, who actually politicized the philosophy so brutally, as you well know, and even today, there still are countries that say they are uh, communistic, but it's just another form, really, nowadays of, um, of course, of capitalism. It's interesting. It changed the world. It really did. It really did. And so and then those of the people, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies, that is the Old and the New Testament, the two witnesses, three and a half days becomes three and a half years. Now it's interesting. I want you to sit, have a look at this. And, and not allow their dead bodies to be put in the graves. That is a, an insult. There has been 
no more insult ever heaped on any writing than the book we call the Bible. Here it is. From the 17th of November, 1793, there was an edict by the council there, the Revolutionary Council. No more religion allowed, totally banned. They had slaughtered all the clergy. Well, they tried to slaughter all of them. So no more Christian or any religion to be observed which they actually overturned again on the 20th of June 1797, the same council. Why? Because they could see that they were descending in an abyss as a nation and they could see the incredible damage they had afflicted on the nation of France and had weakened it so much. Three and a half years, it was dead. And then things changed. Once they allowed, once they allowed it to resume, the, uh, those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, send gifts to one another. Let me tell you something, that you know the week, we know the week, and the week only comes from the book of Genesis, the Bible. There's no other source that you can come up with. They change it to a 10-day week. Would you believe it? It didn't work, but they did that for a while. Because of those two prophets, because of the Bible, the Word of God, it tormented them. Was there guilty conscience? Yes. Those who dwell on the earth, they hated the two witnesses, the Word of God. And after the three and a half years, days, the 10th of June, from the 10th of June, 1797, the breath of life from God entered them. So after it being forbidden, dead in the street, so to speak, life came into the Bible again. Notice, and they stood to their feet. They came into their own being again. And great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a voice from heaven saying to them, come up here to the two witnesses. Come up here. It was exalted to heaven, if you like, and they ascended to heaven in a cloud and their enemies saw them. And that brings us, I believe, to the church of Philadelphia. Do you remember the story of the seven churches? Philadelphia, brotherly love. In the history of the Christian churches, aside from the apostolic church, there never has been a quite a revival as there found place during the Philadelphian church. Missionary revival. I know we've had wonderful reformers and they did great work, but the missionary spirit came into its being during the era of the Philadelphian church, which is about this era. The end of the 1800s, the beginning of the 1900s, or, or um, the, the beginning of the 1800s and the end of the 1700s was the era of the Philadelphian church when the, the missions were unequaled. Let's have a look at them. Let's have a look at them. 
Uh, you may know some of these names. Judson to Burma, uh, William Carey to India, uh, Morrison to China, uh, David Moffat and Livingston to Africa. Then there were the Bible societies, the British Bible uh, Society, 1804, 1816, the American Bible Society, translating the Bible in many, many, many different languages, in dozens of languages. It went around the world in that time, the end of the 1700s, early 1800s. Beautiful, early 19th century it started. In the same hour, notice, there was a great earthquake. Now this is a political event. We're still talking about France and what happened to it. And uh, tens of the city fell. A tens of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed. Better translated like this. In the earthquake, 7,000 names of men were killed. Now, the French Revolution. Anybody from aristocracy, anybody that was religiously orientated and held a title was executed. The guillotines did overtime. It was public entertainment to behead all of those. 7,000 here is just a symbolic number, far more than that. You know what's interesting? I come from Europe, I know the places where they used to, where they used to, uh, as history tells us, where they used to execute what they call the heretics, where they used to burn them. You know, so often in the same place when it comes to France, where they used to burn the heretics, those who would not submit to papal authority, they were now killing them they were killing everybody and anybody of a religious order. In fact, France was the champion for Roman Catholicism for many centuries. And yet in the French Revolution, they turned against her. Why? The people had been suppressed. They had been suppressed by the, the royalty, the aristocracy, the upper crust. And they had been also crushed and bludgeoned, really, by the Roman Catholic Church. And so they saw God as a tyrant. No wonder that atheism gave, uh, was given birth in that environment. And so the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. There was a revival after this second to none in the history of the Christian church. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. And so, in the conclusion that we're reaching here, the seventh trumpet, the seventh angel sounded the trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, his anointed. That means that the judgment had come to an end. It was decided who makes up the kingdom of Christ. And so that is what the seventh trumpet will deal with. And he shall reign forever and ever. And then there is a doxology finding place in heaven. Heaven approves. Heaven 
that has looked into the affairs of this world, what happens to this world. We are an object lesson to the universe, you know. So, and the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones, you remember these are the leaders of unfallen worlds, the representatives. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces, worshipped God, saying, We give thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, that means eternity, because you have taken your great power and have reigned. The nations were angry, opposing God's people. And your wrath has come. God has dealt with them. And the time of the dead that they should be judged. Isn't that interesting? When I go back to that little statement, and the time of the dead that they should be judged. The dead that are lost, and Revelation will really explain that in detail. When Jesus returns, those who have died and have not accepted Christ, willfully rejected their association with him. Do you know that they will have no knowledge of the second coming of Christ? But they will be brought back to life. They will be brought back at a certain resurrection, which is just for those who are lost. So they may recognize why they are lost. Isn't that interesting? We'll talk about that further in the latter chapters of the book of Revelation. They will be judged. They will be judged. And uh, we'll come to that when we uh, reach the, uh, towards the end. And that you should reward your servants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great. There is a reward for those who have chosen Christ as their Lord and Savior. And here's another interesting statement. And should destroy those who destroy the earth. Written in 95 AD. How could you destroy the earth? But today you could. Boy, we live in a very different era of time, isn't it? And should destroy those who destroy the earth. And then the temple of God was opened in heaven. And this is a very important statement. And the Ark of His Covenant, the Ark of His Covenant was seen in His temple. Now what this indicates, the 19th verse of the 11th chapter of the book of Revelation, the preceding chapters of the book of Revelation, Christ is in the sanctuary, the first compartment. And now we are going to move into the second compartment. And you will see as we do this, that much of the doctrine of the church that we belong to, the seven days Adventist church, actually comes from the most holy place. Present day truths come from the most holy place. And it'd be worth your while to continue studying this book. And so, there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, Earthquake, this accompanies the second coming. This is the second coming. And great hail, very destructive. 
And so next week, we're going to look at the center of the book of Revelation. There is a chapter, chapter 12. That's the one we're going to study. Which actually gives us a 6,000 six years history. It tells us, uh, the central message, of course, being the theme of the great controversy. The great controversy between Christ and Satan. It will tell uh, the expelling of Satan out of heaven. And, of course, the demons, the angels that resided for him. It will also tell us, assures us, that the battle is already decided. And the other thing that we will be studying in that chapter as well is the church in the wilderness. Fascinating era. You should know this. And so, here it is. Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. Isn't it wonderful that God does that? He tells John. John writes it down. And there it is, almost 2,000, 1,900 years plus later. We're looking at it and we're studying it that we know what is happening around us and with us, where we find ourselves in history and how close we are, how close we are coming to the second coming of Jesus. He's coming back and it is soon. And so I would urge you, keep studying the book of Revelation. Keep studying it. It'll bless you no end. It really will. Shall we just bow our heads? Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have been able to study the book of Revelation again. And I pray for all of those who have uh, listened attentively, Lord, that you bless them, that you keep them, and that one day we will be standing on that sea of glass, seeing your face. How beautiful that will be. Bless us now. Keep us near to your heart. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Revelation Ancient Prophecy with Pastor Baron Neustraten, brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio. For more information on this series, visit waitarachurch.org.au. This is the Hamilton family with the song, In God We Trust, In God Alone. We pray for peace and plead for grace. We bow our knees in humbleness. We cry to God to heal our land. Forgive our sins and cleanse our hands. In God we trust, in God alone. We put our faith in Him who sits on heaven's throne. No man of earth will rise and fall. Our only hope is in the Lord of all. In God we trust.
tip lady who loves to help make your life more simple let me ask you is your life complicated do you have one new task thrown on top of another and another and another until you feel like you're going crazy and one more will like the proverbial camel simply break your back well I can help you because I've been there done that the first tip I have for you today is a simple one here it is have the courage to say no Some years ago when I was under a lot of stress and finding things really hard to cope with, I had a book thrown at me and I was told to read it. It was called The Courage to Say No. How glad I've been ever since that I did what was strongly suggested and I read it. I read that book as though I was a drowning woman and so ever since, 
when asked by somebody to do yet another job. I often politely say, no, I'm not able to do that, and I smile. I've learned to never give a reason. When people say, oh, but you'd be so good at that, you could do it so well, I simply smile. I don't look cross. I just smile and say, I'm just not able to do that. And I don't give an excuse. Because if you give an excuse, or if you give an excuse and you say, I can't do that because I've got a little baby, or I can't do that because I'm busy with, or I can't whatever, and you tack on the last bit with an excuse, you're going to be asked, well, I'll look after the baby, or I'll help you with that busy whatever it is, and you can do whatever I'm asking you to do. I don't fall for that trap anymore. I just say, I'm sorry, I'm not able to do that, and I smile and walk away. That's the first tip, have the courage to say no. This will simplify your life. And ask God for the wisdom to know what to say no to, and he will give it. Here's tip number two that is guaranteed to make your life more simple this very day. Guess what it is? It's simply this, learn to delegate. Oh, what do I mean by that? So often we think we're the only person who's going to do it right. Well then, if you want to go on suffering, that's your choice. When you give simple instructions for what you want to have done, then keep your perfectionistic nose out of the result. Perhaps, like me, you want your boy to make his bed. So you teach him how, then walk away and don't look back. If he's done it, but it's not to your standard, let it go. Lecturing about how a job is worth doing, it's worth doing well, is a lecture for another day. So if there's a job that you think only you can do properly, that's a clear sign that you need to delegate it to someone else. It may get done a bit differently from the way you would have done it, but you know what? The job gets done. And sometimes, even sometimes, it's done more creatively than you would have done. So, there's my two tips for today. What are they? Develop the courage to say no. This saved my life. I can promise you, develop the courage to say no is so important. And learn to delegate. Develop these habits and unload some of that stress from your back. This will free you to live a more simple life. Develop the courage to say no. Learn to delegate. So you want to uncomplicate your life? Then practice these two simple tips today. That's it today from the two-tip lady who loves to give simple tips to make your life more simple. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.